Hosea chapter 7, verse number 8, and it reads as follows. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a silly dove without a heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because uh, they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried in me with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assembled themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let's pray before we look at these verses today. Dear God, thank you for giving us this time to study your word, to look into the Bible. And we thank you that we have a Bible to look into, to gain insight from, to learn from. Everything now as I try to speak your word from the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Continue our study of the book of Hosea today. If you recall, we've been studying this, what we call the second part of the book Hosea, the more prophetic part, which is what we normally associate with these prophecy books, which is what God tells his prophet to tell to other people, right? The first part was more story-like when we talked about Hosea's life. Now we're gotten in, we've gotten into what Hosea has to say from God, his message, his message. And we've been following it from chapter 4 on, and it's been going pretty uh, systematically, pretty systematically what God's message is to these people. And we know from our opening introduction and from my continuous repetition, the theme of this book, the book of Hosea, is, of course, repentance. Repent. This is God's call to Israel to repent. Repent. And so we've been seeing in these uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, uh, how God's message comes forth about that. And we've been seeing it pretty logically play out. In chapter 4, it starts off with kind of like the complaint, the accusation of God laying out, hey, Israel, this is your sin. This is your problems, right? To, to put, it, put it out there, all the things. What has Israel done wrong? And there was such a long laundry list that, you know, this whole chapter is talking about it, right? Chapter 5 sets up judgment, right? Here's your sin. Guess what's coming? Judgment. Judgment is coming. And it will be first a slow judgment, right? As if a moth was rusty, uh, eating away at them. And then a big judgment as a young lion ripping up Israel, warning this country, hey, judgment is coming to you for all your sins, right? But then in chapter 6, in chapter 6, a call to return to the Lord, to return to the Lord, a chance, a second chance at repentance, right? In the third day, he will raise us up. In chapter number 6, it said, right? This is your chance to be raised up, to get mercy, right? In chapter 7, we saw the end result, the reaction. This is the offer of mercy. Chapter 7, we start off the first half last time with the reaction. The reaction was that Israel still 
would not repent. They were still set in their ways of sin. And as we've pointed out, this is particularly relevant even today, even though you say these prophets spoke long ago, thousands of years ago. It's still relevant because that storyline of Israel perfectly matches and mirrors our own lives. Our own lives right here in 21st century America. Because guess what? We all sinned. We all have a judgment coming to us. We all get called for repentance from God. How? By trusting in Jesus, who did what? Who rose on the third day, just like it said back in the days of Hosea, right? Trusting in that same Jesus who rose on the third day. And by trusting him, we get salvation. Israel's offered that same salvation back then, 2,000 years ago. Trusting in God, the God that can raise them the third day, they could have had that salvation too. But what do they choose to do? They chose to continue to do what they were doing. And what happens today in 21st century America? The same type of thing. Oh, I didn't record this on this one. <laughs> and what do they do today in 21st century America? The same thing, right? The same thing. They don't repent. They don't come back to God. What do they do instead? They do their own thing, right? And that's what chapter 7 focuses on here. That's what chapter 7 focuses on. In chapter 7 last time when we studied the first seven verses, the first seven verses, it kind of explains why they would not repent, right? Because verse number 2 told us, they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. They don't remember that God knows their heart. The sin is so ingrained in their hearts. But we know that God knows everything, right? Not just what we do and what we say, but what we feel and what we think. And God knows of our own internal sin, the sin that maybe other people don't see, the sin that goes on in our heart. And that's how corrupted Israel was, that the sin became part of who they are internally. And what happens is, as we talked about last time, once the sin is internal, eventually it'll bubble up outside to external. That's the way it always Starts, right? No one all of a sudden comes out of nowhere and decides, oh, I'm going to go commit adultery, right? What happens first? They have lust of some sort, right? Internal. No one knows when you have whatever lust internally, right? But some, uh, sooner or later, it bubbles up and then this happens, right? But God knows. God knows that sin. And we talked about last time how we need to change our hearts. It's one of the hardest things, right? To rewire the way we think and feel so that we don't lust after these other things, right? That might cause us to go to sin. That might cause us to go against what God would want. No, no, no. God's calling us to be cognizant of this fact, to remember that he knows our heart. And you know, that's, that's how we got to hope that we have it wired in our hearts. Like the example I gave last time is, look, when you have the policeman watching you and you're driving, you're not going to speed, right? You're not going to forget to signal your right turn and left turn, right? You know the policeman's watching you. If you know in your heart that God's there, God's watching you, hopefully it will help us in our efforts to eliminate that type of sin in our life, the sin of our heart the ones that even people cannot see. And that will help prevent us having the sins that bubble out in the outward sense. That was last time. That was what we talked about the first 
seven verses of chapter seven. Now we're going to finish up chapter seven. Let's see what God has here. He has more stuff about why Israel is not turning back to him. Talks about Ephraim. What has he done? In verse eight, Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turn. Now, what is this cake not turn? Last time, we saw these examples of being a baker, right? A baker that lets, uh, leaves the cake in the oven, right? And what's messed up. Continues the analogy here. When we talk about cake here, we're not talking about the cakes that, you know, we eat today, right? We're talking about for these Israelites, when we're talking about cakes that need to be turned, the cakes they're talking about are things that are more like pancakes, right? You guys have all had pancakes before, and you guys know how to make pancakes. You got to flip it, right? At some point. What happens if you don't flip the pancake? One side is burned, the other side is still not cooked all the way. It's horrible, it's inedible, right? That's the analogy that God has made about Ephraim, right? It is just as if it was a cake not turned. Why? Because they've mixed themselves among the people, among the worldly people, among the non-Jewish people, among the the people that are guiding them to sin. How they guide them to sin? Verse 9, the strangers have devoured his strength, right? Causing gray hairs upon him, right? But even though all this is happening, that they've turned to all these outsiders and they're getting weakened, what does it say in verse 10? The pride of Israel testifieth that they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this, right? Their reaction Hey, things are getting worse. Things are getting bad because of all our sin. Our reaction is not to turn back to God, not to repent. Instead, verse 11, Ephraim is like a silly dove. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria, right? Instead, their reaction, instead of saying, hey, let's get right with God, it's let's go check out what's going on in Egypt. Let's go check out what's going on in Assyria. Maybe these things have the answer for me, right? Maybe they know how to help me, these other people, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, these other folks, right? But it's God. It's God that's in control, right? Verse 12, God explains that when they're going everywhere, God's in control. He's spreading their, his net upon them to bring them down as the fowls in heaven. A fowl's a bird, right? It's as if he, they're trying to fly away. God casts a net on them and says, no, no, no. You can't you go there. That's still trouble, right? So they try to escape. That's not the way. That's not God wants, right? Continue to rebel against them. Continue to rebel, rebel, rebel against God, right? And so verse 16, ultimately, it says what? It says, the princes shall fall by their sword for the rage of their tongue, and this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So they're going to go to Egypt. Guess what? It's not going to work. The princes are still going to fall. This is what God is telling them, right? Remember, call to repent. They're rejecting that call to repent, and they're seeking out these other things, and God's telling them this is the result. This is the result. It's not going to be any good. It's not going to be any good if this is your way of responding to my call to you. So that's what his message to Israel was. And again, this is a message applicable to us today. When we get get the call from God to repent for our sins, for our wrongdoing, Right? For our trials, our tribulations, our sufferings, right? When we're in the hard situation, where do we turn? God's given us the answer. 
obviously what we need to do is turn to God. That's what he wants, right? That's what God wants. He wants us to rely on him and have him be our comfort, be our guide, and so on. But the way of man, the way of all of all these uh, people living today, 21st century United States, and yes, even for many Christians, is not their first reaction when they, have some, when, when they have something go wrong to turn to God. The reaction is very similar to what Israel does. What did Israel do? They turned around to all these other worldly sources to see if they can't uh, get help from there first. And us human beings here, a lot of times our first reaction is the same. It's to look for the worldly answer. Maybe the world can help me to find my solution, to make me feel better for my woe. It's no surprise, it's no surprise that we have so many vices in this world today, even though people know they're vices and they're bad and all these things. Because people, when they're in trouble, seek out those things as solutions and the hopes that it might make them feel better or something like that, right? Some people, let's say for example, lost their job, right? Lost their job, and it's happened to, to, to a lot of people before, Christians, non-Christians, everyone, right? What do some people do as reaction? Well, if you watch TV and you know the stereotype, how do, how do, how do some people react? They want to drown their sorrows, how? You go to the bar, right? You go to the bar and drown your sorrows. That's your solution. I'm feeling bad. Horrible situation. No job. What can make me feel better? What's the reaction? What does it say about our society that if you watch TV and watch movies, the first reaction is, I got to get to the bar. got to get a drink, right? But why do people do that? Why is that? Well, I think I've talked about this before somewhat. I think you guys know the science of this a lot is that people go to the bar and they want to get a drink because it makes them literally feel a little bit better because the alcohol is a drug, right? You take this drug and it alters your mood, right? No one really drinks the alcohol because, oh, I love the taste. It's like the tastiest thing, right? I know people who've drank alcohol and I've heard them tell stories to like young folks like when they have, when they're turning 21 and they tell these young guys like, oh, talking about, they're the reminiscing about drinking their first beer or whatever, right? And how horrible. It's like, oh, it's like bitter and it tastes like whatever. But he says, oh, you get used to it, right? You get used to it. And then it feels good, right? To have like a beer after a long day of work or whatever. And so that type of feeling is what drives people to seek that as their solution, right? Oh, I'm feeling down. I'm unhappy. I lost my job. Let me seek out the solution. Oh, I got, I've got alcohol. That will comfort me, right? But we all know that that's not a real comfort, right? That's a temporary comfort, right? It works for a second. Right? A minute? I don't know how long it works. I've never, never, never had alcohol, so I can't tell you, right? It works for however long it works for. But then it wears off. So what do people do? You guys know the stereotype, right? You have to have more. That's the way people get drunk. No one goes to the bar thinking, I decided I'm going to go get drunk today, right? People don't think that way. People know. If you're able to think logically, you know that, hey, getting drunk is not a good idea. It's not a good idea. I might 
be a drunk driver, right? I might get sick, I might throw up, I might get alcohol poisoning. There's so many bad things associated with it, right? Why do people do it? They do it because it makes them get a certain feeling. And when the feeling wears off, you get more, right? And that's their solution. It's the empty solution. It's just as empty as Israel going to Egypt and saying, Egypt, help me, help me. They can go to Egypt and maybe they might help them for a minute. But that's not the solution to their sin. That's not a solution for their lifestyle. That's not a solution to their problems. Only repenting, only turning to God is that help. So today, people turn to things like alcohol. It's no surprise that, that people are looking for more vices nowadays. Because, you know, after a while, you drink so much alcohol, it doesn't have any effect on you anymore, right? You look for the next thing. Why is it that the United States is moving toward more and more, and we need to legalize marijuana? Again, logically, Melvin just talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? Logically, it makes no sense. Why do you want marijuana for it? There's nothing really good about it. Right? What's good about it, objectively speaking? Right? Nowadays that marijuana is legal in Colorado and Washington, people are actually doing scientific studies on it. Right? They're doing scientific studies. People get paid to do this. University researchers. And it seems to be one of the biggest wastes of money ever. Because what kind of conclusions are they finding? Well, their conclusions are stuff like this. After you know, months and months of scientific study and researching people that, that take marijuana and so on, they say, wow, you know, people who take marijuana, they have... Uh, Worse memory, uh, they do worse in school, right? They have poor job performance. Now look, you and I, we're not scientists and we haven't done a peer-reviewed cross-check study. I think you and I, just from observational evidence and tell you, if you know people have done marijuana before, you know that these people, by and large, I don't think they would do as well in school as other people, right? Based on how they react to when they take their marijuana and so on, right? You don't need a scientist to do that. But why is there a push for this? Why? Because people want another vice, right? They want another reason to literally get high, right? That's what we call it when you, get, uh, when you take marijuana, right? You get high. We want the, to be able to get this high. We want to be able to drown our sorrows. We have a problem. We have a pain, right? That's how it, all, that's how, how it started in California, right? It says we need medical marijuana. Why? Because I'm in pain. I need pain. This can dull my pain. And the only way I can solve my pain is to get this uh, hit, of marijuana to make me feel high just for a minute. That's the worldly solution. You know, all that is temporary. All that's temporary. You take your hit of marijuana, you relieve your pain for, to, for 10 minutes, one hour, whatever, your pain comes back, right? You still have your disease, your suffering, whatever is your back pain, your this, your that, whatever, your sorrow, it's back. The only way to really cure that is through repentance, through God. It might not even be here on earth that God cures you, right? But we know that when we get to heaven, you'll have that new body. You won't have this pain. You won't have your back aches, your disease, or whatever that drives you to say, I need this marijuana. It sure makes me feel better, right? When we turn to the worldly solutions, those are the empty solutions. And it really has no end when you fall down that path. Now, some of you guys know I recently went on vacation to, uh, to Europe, right? And one of the cities I visited in Europe was uh, Amsterdam. I've never been to Amsterdam before. Didn't know a lot about Amsterdam before. But those of you guys who know anything about Amsterdam, now that I've been there, turns out that is the city of real openness. That's, that, that's their, their kind of defining characteristic nowadays, right? That basically, they're moving more and more toward being a city that says, 
we don't care what you do, do whatever you need to do. So I was in Amsterdam and I was talking to the Uber driver, I was in the Uber, you know, driving around, he was telling me about how he's seen in his life, he's lived there his whole life, how bad the country has gotten because they've legalized basically everything, right? It's not just alcohol, it's not just marijuana. He says, now they say, oh, you can do hard drugs, right? They have, they have like uh, people that go around to check your ecstasy to make sure it's not bad ecstasy, right? Because it's normal. Oh, you go to a party, you can get pills, right? And these pills are being checked by the government to say, hey, these pills are okay for you to take, right? That's the way this city has devolved into, right? It's not just, oh, you can have this vice or that vice. They go further and further down. We walked, when we were in Amsterdam, we were trying to get to Chinatown to check out what's like in Chinatown there, right? And we're walking to Chinatown, and there's this area that you, that's right next to Chinatown called Red Light District. I don't know, Red Light District. So Elaine's talking about this Red Light District, right? He says, oh, this is like the prostitution area. It's very famous, right? The prostitution area is like, why is it so famous and stuff, right? And we're walking through it. And so we're walking through the city, right? And you figure this is... You know, you walk around other parts of the city, it looks like this beautiful, like, old European city and all that stuff, right? With all the architecture and canals and all this thing. And then you walk through these alleyways, right? And red light alleyways. And then you get something totally different. It's, like, dark, and they have these red lights, like they said. And in the windows, literally on the windows, on the street you're walking by, they have these prostitutes standing there, and it's like going to Safeway, right? Like, oh, do I want one, two, or three? There's like three prostitutes standing in the window. That's what the city has evolved into, that these people have all decided, and like this is what the, ta- the Uber driver is telling me, right? That, oh, in his lifetime, he's seen the city just turn and decay to say, hey, no one cares. People want this thing because that's what makes them feel happy, right? Like, hey, you go to parties and do your drugs, right? Hard drugs, whatever, right? You want to go get, you know, prostitution or whatever? It makes you feel good, right? Oh, they have it right there. It's just as if, as casual as window shopping at like Macy's or whatever, it's right there, right in the window, right? That's the way the world has turned to, right? Has evolved into to, to try to solve their problems of not feeling good, whatever it is, right? And it's never been a solution. It wasn't a solution for Israel. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. It's not a solution for us today, right? People can go to all those things, but all those things are temporary. They're fleeting. If we want true salvation, if we want true peace, if we want true happiness, there's only one way. It's the same message God had 3,000 years ago. That message is to go repent, to have God, When we repent, we have Jesus Christ in our heart. When we have Jesus Christ in our heart, we have joy, we have peace, we have comfort. We know whatever afflictions happen to us here, that there's a God waiting for us in heaven to give us a new body, a new life, a new joy, a new happiness. That we have this comfort of always knowing that we have a God we can pray to, a God that gives us a fellowship of Christians to support, love, care for us. It's not empty. It's not ending. When we seek out the worldly things, they are empty. They're ending. They're temporary. They're fleeting. And they only lead to destruction. Isn't that right? The more we turn to the world to solve our problems, the more it leads to dead end. The more we go down that Amsterdam route, right? Like, oh, we can't 
Alcohol is not enough. Marijuana is not enough. Hard drugs is not enough. Prostitution is not enough. I have no idea what they'll come up with next there in that city to help the people there become happy or do whatever, right? No idea. But you know, that's the world solution. We don't, we don't want to follow that. We want to listen to this message. He's called Israel back then, and he's calling us today. Do we listen? Do we turn to him? Do we follow him? That's what he wants. Repent of our sins. Turn to God for getting through our trials or struggles or tribulations. So that's what we see in chapter 7. That's the next uh, step forward in this. Next time, we will start chapter 8 and see what's next in God's message. But we're out of time right now. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us uh, chapter 7 here of the book of Hosea. Really interesting how Israel would not turn back from you, turn not turn back to you. They went the wrong way. Instead of going closer to you, they went even farther away. They said, let's go to Egypt. Let's go to Syria. Let's try to find someone else to help us. And they went down the wrong path. You know, God, it's sad to see so many people today in the 21st century, in the world today, that when they face these problems, again, same thing. Instead of turning to you, they run away from you, try to drown their sorrows and all these vices. Instead, Lord God, we hope that everyone would know to turn to you, to your salvation, to your love, to your, your peace. God, we know only through you, you have the solution. There's no disease, no, no struggle that you cannot handle. And we want to trust in you and have you be our God and have you preeminent in our lives. We thank you that we have you as a God, that we can worship, glory, and honor you today. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.